Welcome to Half Hour to Curtain, a monthly podcast with theater artists of note. That's Dan Fishback over there. And that's Mark Kaufman over there. We're here in Los Angeles, California, to bring you another interview with another theater luminary. And it's already February, hard to believe. It is hard to believe. And it's almost hard to believe that we have uh, a designer with us, uh, with us this time. Yeah. It's, we we uh, haven't spoken to any designer yet. and We uh, haven't. And this a, is the it's biggest. Kind of, it's kind of cool. This is, the, this is probably the biggest, certainly most prolific guy working in Broadway and mainstream commercial musical theater and theater today. And we're really, really excited to be talking to him. Yes, he designs both musicals and plays. He's represented on Broadway right now with Come From Away, yep. which has been playing for about two years now. Right, at least, uh, the, yeah. the touring company came around. Uh, I saw it at the Amundsen. It's fabulous. It looked, it looked great. Yeah, he, he's a very, very talented man. Yeah. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about who this is? I will. Our guest today is set designer Beowulf Borat, currently represented on Broadway by his work on the musicals Come From Away and Freestyle Love Supreme. Beowulf has a prolific body of work on and off Broadway. He designed the Tony Award-winning set for James Lapine's play, Act One, and has received Tony Award nominations for his designs for Therese Rican and Kander and Ebb's The Scottsboro Boys. He designed Prince of Broadway and also love music for director Harold Prince. He designed Sondheim on Sondheim, the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, A Bronx Tale, On the Town, Hand to God, and the long-running Broadway and international hit Rock of Ages. Off-Broadway, he's designed over 100 shows, including the current Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish, the original production of Jason Robert Brown's The Last Five Years, Mike Birbiglia's The New One, Sleepwalk With Me, My Girlfriend's Boyfriend, and Strindberg's Miss Julie, among many others. A graduate of Vassar College and NYU's Tisch School, he and his work have been called, quote, feverishly inventive, visionary, miraculous, and, quote, a genius guy who does crazy sets by Mel Brooks. It is our great pleasure to welcome the genius guy, Beowulf Borat. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks. It's, it's embarrassing to hear my own press read back to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an impressive list, so <laughs> worth worth talking about. Well, to start off, a talent for artistic design, you know, it often awakens in an early age. Was there a particular influence or inspiration that put you on the path toward your career? Yeah, I think a few things. I, I was always sort of an artsy kid and I loved drawing and I, my parents were, were great about letting me, you know, put up all my pictures all over the kitchen and sort of wallpaper the house with it. But my grandmother was really a, a, a huge influence to me. She had been an art history major in college and actually designed sets when she was in college in the in the early 30s. Wow. But she always encouraged me to paint and draw and she let my cousin and I do, you know, turn her one of her rooms into a puppet theater to do puppet shows all the time. And it was just very encouraging that way. And she bought me my first set of oil paints and you know, so on and so forth. And she was a real artistic soul. And I think my really my whole family always was encouraging about artistic pursuits, which is nice and not something that everybody gets. My father always said, find something you love doing and then you'll figure out how to make a living doing it. Mm. And thank God that's that's turned out to be true. I started doing theater, I think, just doing the school play in elementary school and then in high school. And one summer when I was a junior in high school, I was an intern at a local summer theater in, in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And it's the first time I think I was aware of set design as a thing. There was a set designer there who, who, who designed the sets. And because I was an intern, a lot of my, you know, my tasks were painting sets or helping build things or whatever. 
but I, it's the first time I understood that there was actually a job of doing that specifically. Mm. And I think probably that's the summer where I decided that's what I wanted to try to do. I didn't intend to pursue it professionally at that point. I thought I'd become a college professor, maybe. My father had been a college professor, and it was a world that I knew. But one thing led to another, and here I am some years later. That's really interesting. I, I read that when you were at, at Vassar that you were actually studying literature and not scenic design. How did how did that come about? And you know, is this because you changed your mind about a career as a set designer? Or? No, it's honestly that is at, at Vassar. I think this is still true. It's a very liberal arts curriculum, right. and the major is in sort of an old fashioned way very much a, a literature based major. I, I took set design classes, and I had some wonderful design teachers there, and got to design a lot of shows while I was there. But it's still very heavily a, a sort of a dramatic literature based. Right degree. And we, we took a lot of classes. I wrote a thesis about Hamlet. And it was great. I mean, it was a real kind of, you know, a fairly rigorous, how do you tear apart a play and, and gave me a good grounding in, in, you know, at least Western dramatic literature. Sure. I think all artists have a, a personal way of approaching material, some way that they connect and get into it. I remember uh, Harold Prince has talked about his work with Boris Aronson, the great scenic designer, and the many conversations they'd have about the world of the play, the, the people in the world, what all of that's like, foods that people would eat in that world, pretty much everything except specifics about the scene design itself. And then Aronson would go away and come up with uh, some wonderful concoction. Can you talk a little bit about the process for you and where you begin and what your personal connection is into the world of a play? Sure. You know, it's interesting. I worked with Hal for the last 15 years of his life, and, mm-hmm. and he talked about Boris en- endlessly, of course, and it was mm-hmm. a, a huge presence in the room that I you know, could never really live up to. Not from Hal's point of view. He was always lovely, but it, it, the, that collaboration was so powerful that I, mm-hmm. I felt like it was, he was sort of there in the room with me every time I was with Hal. You know, I wish I knew what my process was. I think, you know, what I tend to do is if, I, if I'm if i working on a new show, I'll sit down and, and try to read the script straight through or as close to that as I can on like a quiet weekend morning where I know my phone's not going to ring and no one's going to bother me. Because it's the one time I'll have to kind of experience the story the way an audience member will, where I just kind of mm. am not watching it exactly, but I'll sit down and, and read it straight through. And, you know, if I'm lucky and there's a, a reading of the play before it goes into her, before I have to design everything, that's even better. I'm working on a production of Richard II right now. And sort of four months out, they got the cast or a cast together to read the play. And I got to just go sit in the corner and listen. And it was really helpful. It's, it's obviously hearing actors speak the lines is, is massively helpful in just kind of letting the play come to life in your mind. So I do that and let, you know, just sort of free associate and see what pops into my head. And I'll get some images that way, obviously, but I really try to have a first meeting with the director without too many preconceived ideas, because it's important to me that any show kind of, not that the literal set is going to spring from the director, but the tenor of the whole show has to spring from the director. They have to be driving it and they have to have a, you know, a sense of where they want the world to go and what's important in the script and what they want to emphasize. And so I try to get a sense of all that. And it's very different what different directors glom onto and what, you know, what's going to interest them. So, you know, it means a production of As You Like It or something. I've, you can design it a thousand different ways and what the directors take on it is going to sort of drive where I go with that. And that's the thing that's, I think, probably the most interesting to me in doing this is that every production is kind of a new adventure and I'm getting in the director's head as much as I'm getting into the play mm-hmm. and trying to understand what what interests them about the play and, you know, and then 
find what in that interests me and what I think I can express visually. And I think that's probably about as far as I have like a, a set path. I sort of go through those steps and then see what happens next. Sometimes, you know, I'll come back with a big pile of research to show to a director. Sometimes I don't do any research at all. Sometimes I'll sit down and start building a model right away. Sometimes I'll do a sketch if I've got an idea that's sort of something I can express in a sketch fairly quickly. I'll do that. Hmm. And and in this day and age, by sketch, I mean Photoshop, really. I, I, or, you know, I'll, I'll create a, a 3D model in Vectorworks and put it into Photoshop and create a, a, some kind of a rendering that way. But 99% of the time, it all ends up in a model eventually. Set design is a, it's a 3D art form. It's a dimensional thing that people are going to exist in space. And it's a sculptural form. Even at its flattest, it's still something that's going to ultimately exist in space. And I need to build a model to figure that out. I, I gather there's a trend of more and more doing stuff completely with virtual models. And, and maybe the young, younger generation is able to do that successfully. But I learned so much by actually making a thing out of cardboard or whatever and seeing what the space looks like in three dimensions and figuring out what it's going to be. That, that, that's really how I design a set is by building the model. I've just been interviewing assistants to try out some new people. And, you know, a lot of assistants get hired to build models and I really never do it because it, it is my design process is that three-dimensional thing that I'm going to try to make. And I, I use a lot of the modern tools that are available in this day and age. I do a lot of 3D printing, a lot of laser cutting to, you know, to help build a model more quickly or more efficiently or, or frankly, just in more detail. But still getting to that, that three-dimensional sculptural object, which is eventually going to be blown up in full scale, is, is right. important to me. And that's, that's really where I figure it all out. Mm. And I basically found almost always it's true. If it looks good in the model, it will look good in full scale. You've got to be careful as you translate it to full scale. And, you know, the smaller the model, the easier it is to be sloppy about things and not make decisions that, that are going to, you know, suddenly be much bigger decisions when they're in full scale. And I'm always kind of terrified in that moment where, where it's all actually coming together on stage for the first time, because I feel like, oh, well, what if I fucked it up this time and it's not going to look okay. But you know, it nine times or whatever, ninety nine times out of a hundred. If it if it if the model was good, the physical set will work the same way and look the same way. Mm. You know, hopefully the director and everyone else isn't surprised by it. <laughs> and as a, as a side note to that, I remember you think of going from a small to a large. Some years ago, just a personal story. My mother was going to redo the guest room and wanted to do it in peach. And on the paint chip, the peach was a perfectly beautiful little color on four walls and carpeting, <laughs> suddenly you were inside this massive peach, which would keep anyone awake in the middle of the night. So, yes. you know, at least with a set you can repaint, well, with a room you can repaint. Have you ever had that problem? Or a um, color or something you had to adjust in a big way? A little bit. Most often I find what happens is I make things a little too bright and we've got to knock them darker on stage. And that, you know, a white set looks beautiful in a model and it looks beautiful on stage until you're trying to see actors against it. And, you know, <laughs> right. and it, it really depends massively on the lighting designer. If you go into it knowing, you know, intentionally saying it's going to be white and everyone kind of accepting what that means, it can be perfectly fine to be a truly honest to God white set. But it, you know, it, it limits some things you're going to do. And it, you know, you certainly can't achieve an actor in a spotlight with nothing else visible on a white set because it all reflects the light back. So I would say most often that's what I end up doing is going in and kind of knocking things darker and cooling things down a little bit. I don't think I've ever in a massive way gone in and completely redone something. I, I upholstered a sofa in red once, a massive sectional sofa that was kind of the centerpiece of a set. 
and it did feel brighter on stage than we expected. And the director and I both liked it, but the costume designer and the producers did not. Mm. And we ended up reupholstering it at great expense in the middle of a Broadway preview period. But for the most part, again, if it looks okay in the model, it'll look it'll look okay in, in real life. You know, I, that, that paint chip thing is an easy thing to fall into. And I've done it in my own house, that things, that things need to be a couple shades lighter in general to look good on your wall than they do on the paint chip. And it's a, a lesson I've learned the hard way a couple times over. You've talked a little bit about how your process sort of involves modern technology. It seems that the Broadway set has occasionally evolved or, or perhaps devolved to a point where the set has actually become the drama instead of supporting it. How do you balance the desire of a modern audience to see spectacular scenery and really good-looking stuff and also be sure that it doesn't overpower the story? I think you just have to be careful about how you do things. When you're telling a story, there are moments that may be appropriate for the the physical production to take over for a moment or two and and be center stage and do something, the, the chandelier falling in Phantom of the Opera or something like that. And so you have to work those into the storytelling and see where they fit in kind of the arc of the story and is it appropriate? You certainly don't ever want to step on, you know, an important dramatic moment where an actor is doing something because it's, then you're right. really wrecking the story. Ultimately, theater is about an actor telling a story to an audience and, you know, everything else is supporting that. But that doesn't mean that there aren't moments where other things can take center stage. When James Lapine and I were doing Act One a few years back, that was a massive set and we very carefully structured how the set went together to to mesh with the structure the, the structure of the play so that going from one scene to the next, the next actors basically would step from one room of the set into the next. It was about 35 different spaces around a big circle. And we, we wanted the transitions to all be seamless and kind of instant. And so we sort of very carefully planned it all so you could just kind of move from space to space to space. But there were times when we had suddenly had to cover a big distance to get back from, you know, point whatever point w back to point a again right and we were careful to make sure that those landed at points in the story where where actually you wanted to take a breath you've been sort of plugging along very frantically for 20 minutes and then you need a breath for the audience to kind of catch up again and you'd still focus on the actor but what we tended to do is have an actor go walking along and the set would do a big change behind them and it, there was a sort of a non-storytelling moment that that fit into the story in a way and, and allowed you to, to take that pause but I will say that my taste sort of tends away from big, heavy scenery generally, right. because I think it, it's harder to, you want to let the, imagine, the audience's imagination have space to kind of fill in the blanks for you. And that was another kind of important Hal Prince lesson that I've really embraced. He always said you need a lot of black space, a lot of blank space on stage so that the audience can fill in the pieces for you. Mm. And taking that lesson, I feel like if I can put the perfect chair and the perfect chandelier on stage in an empty space, and you imagine the, the mansion that is supposed to be implied by those two pieces, everyone's going to imagine their own mansion. And it, as I say, it makes you active in the process, not just sitting back and watching it. It's not everybody's taste. And, you know, some people like a big kind of realistically detailed box set. And, and I do those sometimes. But I think my, my personal taste is for more kind of spare theatrical stuff that, right. that allows the audience to fill in blanks for you. Well, and picking up on that, of course, your, your association with Harold Prince was obviously a, a great part of your education, your professional working education, and you designed, hence, Prince of Broadway, which was the sort of cataloging review of his many shows directing and producing his career. An interesting assignment. I saw the show, 
and you you very cleverly kind of boiled down to the essence a snapshot of each of those shows in simple but effective ways. Was this a tricky, daunting task, or or did you immediately seize on elements that you knew, oh, I can do this, I can do that, to represent the shows uh, simply but effectively? I mean, it was both, I think. Luckily, going into that project, I, I was familiar with most of the designs. Not that I, I hadn't seen them live, but I have the Boris Aronson book and I have the Eckert mm-hmm. book. And I'd sort of studied them. So I sort of, I knew what the designs had been um, and the parts of them that appealed to me and that felt kind of iconic, I guess. And the thing that kind of cracked open that show because it, you know, it was whatever it was, it was 25 of his shows. And and the assignment was to put as much of the original on stage as we could in, in some way. But what cracked it open was the idea of doing it in, in an empty theater, which is which is hardly a, a new idea for, for musicals. But because Hal is so much about kind of empty space, I thought, well, let's do a big empty theater and we'll put pieces of each of these shows in. And sometimes they were very full stage and sometimes they weren't. And I tried to kind of pace that out so that, you know, the shows that that needed a little more light and life were more full stage things like, like the beautiful girl sequence in Follies or Superman. But so many of Hal's shows take place in kind of dark psychological spaces that the big black empty theater was actually a good envelope for a lot of Sweeney Todd sits very naturally there because the spider woman sits there. Well, parade sits there. Well, and so that ended up being a, a kind of a good through line for that show, but it, but it was an interesting challenge. I initially felt uncomfortable with it because one thing I try not to do is copy other set designers work. I am sure I do it by accident all the time, but I try not to consciously do it. And when I'm designing a show that's existed before, I I actually often try not to go look at the original design because I don't want to get it in my head. And this was a case where I had to look at the original designs because it really was about trying to represent those designers' work. Mm. And the way I came to terms with it in my own head was that if I was, you know, designing a, a set that took place in the Roman Forum, I would go do research and copy all the architecture of the Roman Forum. And I really treated it the same way, that each of these original sets was a location and I was doing research about what that location had looked like and trying to grab, you know, the the sort of central part of it or the most iconic part of it. And in a way that was going to communicate what, what the show had felt like or looked like. Now you won the Tony award for your design of James Lapine's play act one, based on the book of the same name by, by Moss Hart. And on that set, you created an entire neighborhood, really showing the diversity of poverty and wealth, all in one multi-level set piece. I saw the, the show and found the design to be absolutely remarkable. It reminded me very much of, of what Oscar Hammerstein sort of had a constant desire for, the sense of fluidity on stage or, or cinematic staging, the this, this sense that, that we're always moving. How did the idea for that set develop and how difficult was it to accomplish you know when i read the play the challenge was kind of instantly obvious to me Mm. that it was it was so many locations and the scenes are generally very short so you would have maybe a minute in each location or a couple of minutes and then be on to the next place and that happened over and over and over again through the play and yet it it was calling for for spaces for rooms for things that kind of you know express the tenement they were in or the producer's office or the theater whatever it was and in a weird way, I think James and I had said early on that if we were doing it off-Broadway, 
we would almost certainly have just done it with, you know, six chairs and a table and you could, you could do the whole play that way. But on Broadway, I think there is an expectation for more than that generally. And in the Vivian Beaumont, especially it's such a massive space right. that we felt like it just, it would be disappointing to kind of do that version. And it actually would, it would detract from the play to try to, to do that simple scaled down version, even though had we been downstairs in, in the, uh, the Mitzi Newhouse, I think it actually would have worked brilliantly and you could have told the story very well that way. And I struggled with it for a while. I I think I've told this story a lot, but I I had actually come up with a sort of another empty backstage set idea version of how to, to do it. And I built a model and I scheduled a meeting with James. And the night before I was looking at it and I think was thinking, God, I, you know, there are so many versions of this empty backstage theater telling of a story. I don't want to do that again. Mm. And it actually doesn't feel quite right for this play. And there's got to be a better way to do it. And I really had one of those eureka moments where the idea just kind of popped into my head in an instant. I mean, it it felt like divine intervention or something. I'm not religious, but it it was a moment. (laughs) The basic solution to the play just was suddenly there in my head. And I spent the rest of the night, I, I keep, you know, boxes of old model pieces around and I pulled out all this, these broken pieces of architecture from old sets and furniture and I built a version of what was the ultimate act one set that night with a hot glue gun. Um, wow. And it was, you know, it was made of matchsticks and balsa wood and junk. It was really messy. And it certainly didn't have the tracking done properly in it. I just kind of hit some of the main ideas of like, there could be this location and there can be stairs up and down, but it expressed the idea in a, in a very kind of messy, quick way. And the next day I went in and I sh- first I showed James the, the backstage theater idea and he was clearly disappointed. And he looked at me and he said, well, you got anything else? And I said, as a matter of fact, I do. And I pulled out <laughs> the good idea. And within about two minutes, he said, yeah, that's what we're doing. And that was kind of the exciting part of the process. The tedious part was figuring out just the mechanics of right. all of it, how all of those rooms interconnected in a way that allowed the blocking to play out. And also knowing that it was a new play and the structure was going to change to some degree sure. as it developed. And there were places in previews where we did occasionally get into trouble and there were scenes that we moved to multiple different locations around that set, trying to make the tracking work better and, and right. to make them look, look like something because as, as much as it was a skeletal set to some degree, we still had enough realistic things in each location to kind of imply the space that, you know, we found you a hotel lobby looked good in space a, but not in space B, but it turned out space a was too far from space C where we had to get to next. And there were there were certain scenes that were real trouble spots that we just kind of kept fighting, and I think ultimately solved, but they were tricky. Well, it's certainly a a, a wonderful and complex set, and I think of that next to Come From Away, say, which is more simple in looking at it at any rate. You know, really a, an empty stage for actors and moving chairs around and that sort of thing. Would you say there are is there any commonality between different sets that you've designed? In other words, elements that would that you would say this is a Beowulf Borat set because it does X, Y, or Z? You know, the, the thing that I try to achieve, and I, I don't on every set, but is that sense of spareness and theatricality, that, that letting the audience space to be complicit and to imagine parts of it. Certainly that's true in Come From Away, where we're not physically representing hardly anything, even mm-hmm. though there's there are real trees on stage. And, it's not meant to literally be in a forest very often. There's one or two scenes, I guess, that are. But even in Act One, as massive as that set was and as, as enormous as it was, it was still very skeletal and very open and trying to leave a massive amount of empty space. And in fact, that's what allowed it to work because we would use 
some of those rooms for multiple, multiple locations. Some of them were four or five or six different locations in the course of the play by changing out a couple of props. But, you know, the windows and the doors stayed the same and the ceiling stayed the same. A lot of things stayed the same in them. And we would change one or two kind of more dramatic or more colorful things out to imply the new space. And I think that that is what I try to achieve on almost everything. When I read a scene in a play, probably not, maybe not the first time I read it, but the second time I read a play, I sort of go through and, and chart every, every scene as we go through, both how long the scene is, so I know how long, like what percentage of the play we're gonna be sitting in that location, and what are the things that the script calls for? Do we need a bed? Do we need a door? Do we need nothing? And my basic instinct is to not put anything more on stage than the things that the script absolutely calls for. And I, I'm being a little disingenuous to say that, but if the script calls for a door, I don't really want to do more than a door if I can help it, or a door and one other thing that help you know establish that location. It depends on the play. If we're sitting in one location for 45 minutes, then I'll probably do a little bit more. But one thing I, I just can't stand is watching scenery change. You know, a scene change can very quickly feel like a very, very long amount of time. And it's important that the transitions be kind of interesting and beautiful and feel like they have some dramatic import. Otherwise, they, they begin to get in your way and, and tread on you. And getting from, from point A to point B to point C through a show is, is one of the most important things that I think about. I, I have described set design as, as the transformation of space over time. And that is sort of how I think of it. it. It's a volume of space that needs to emphasize an actor or actors, depending on what size of play it is. And as that space transforms from scene to scene, that needs to either be fast or slow, or the pace of it has to relate to sort of the pace of the play, and it helps establish the pace of the play. And uh, it's important. And in general, that means that it needs to be able to move fairly quickly so you're not waiting for things. But sometimes you can have a very long transition and have that be interesting as well if it's appropriate to the play and that moment of the storytelling. Mm. Well, and we're way beyond the time. In the old days where they'd close the curtain and there'd be a scene out in front in one while they're yeah. doing a massive scene change behind. That's, you know, yeah. those yeah. days are over. So uh, fluidity and, and, and is important. Yeah, and I still do that sometimes. It's a great technique when you can, there were moments in Prince of Broadway that were set up that way, where mm -hmm. we, would, we would have one scene and get the next thing set up behind it, and you do kind of a big, wonderful reveal. It's, it is, to this day, quite effective, but audiences have sort of caught on to the idea that you can't just do a little, you know, <laughs> pull down on the apron telling a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Although some try, I think. Uh, yes, yes. You said that your work always lies in simplicity. In the answer to your last question, you, you talked about using space for multiple different things and that everything ultimately is about working in the same space. Is that what you mean by that? I'm trying to think what I mean by that. I, you know, what I think I mean by that is I don't like a lot of clutter on stage mm. most of the time, or if there are, there is a lot of clutter, I want it to all kind of meld together into a single idea. Right. Um, I feel like a set design ought to be kind of a single idea, not an accumulation of details. And I don't like it when, when a set, is just an accumulation of details. It feels like it all should meld together and you should be able to sum it up in a sentence what the visual idea is. It shouldn't be this and this and this and this. It should be boom, one thing. And often that means not a lot of stuff or I'm not even sure what I mean by that exactly. <laughs> so clearly I, I, I do some very involved sets that have yeah. a lot of things in them and, and producers who pay for them certainly wouldn't, wouldn't you know, let me get away with saying they're all simple. I'm working on a set right now at Lincoln Center with Lapine, 
that is conceptually a very simple idea. It's, it's a sort of a, a round volume of space that morphs into a couple of different things in the course of the show, but it's a, a 60 foot diameter, 25 foot tall volume of space. Mm-hmm. And so that, in and of, even though it's a, it's a very simple idea, it's a massive construction. And as much as I keep talking about scene changes need to be fast, this is actually a show where, you know, we've got scenery that's moving 45 or 50 feet sometimes in, oh, wow. in the course of a transition. And even moving really fast, that still takes a while. And it's, it's a show that we think will, will work well that way, but it, it's, it's a little counter to what I often preach. And, it, and when, you know, and, and that's part of the adventure of it is seeing if in fact it works and it, it is as exciting as we hope that it will be. Who do you look up to as influences for your work, be, whether they be set designers, visual artists, authors, whoever they are? Are there particular people that, that have influenced you? You know, I often say Joe Melziner. I, I, his, mm. his renderings are gorgeous and beautiful, and I have a few of them on my walls. I can't paint like that, and so I'm immensely jealous of anyone who can. <laughs> you know, all that said, I don't know that I, my, my style has much to do with his style. I just, I, but I do find his renderings tend to be kind of simple and evocative, and in that sense, I, I do try to, to work that way. I really think the biggest influences have been some of the really wonderful directors I've gotten to work with. Hal was a huge influence on me. You know, James Lapine started as a graphic designer and he's very visually oriented. And the shows that I've done with him have always been some kind of a visual idea that's a little off base and something that most directors wouldn't allow me to do. And he's so interested in the visual that he'll he'll do something that may be hard to stage. Act one was a it was a nightmare to stage. Mm. It really, it was a very hard exercise for him to do. Yeah. And although ultimately it 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 helped tell the story, the process of, of putting it all together was very difficult. And so I, I love working with him in that way. I've done a lot with Susan Stroman in the past 10 years, and you know, nobody tells a story through dance the way the way she can do that. Right. And consequently, every time we go into a project, you know, I know that that is going to be front and center. Whatever the visual part of the story is, I need to allow the dance to to play out and allow her the, the tools and the space that she needs to do that. One really wonderful experience I had last summer, I did uh, Much Ado About Nothing in the park for Kenny Leon. Mm. And I'd worked with Kenny maybe 10, 15 years ago. We'd known each other for a long time, but we hadn't worked together in a while. And so we were doing this show and his idea from the beginning was that he wanted to be set essentially in Atlanta in modern day. Our first conversation, he said, well, at the beginning, they're coming back from the war. And I said, okay, they're coming back from Iraq or Afghanistan. And he said, no, the war that's going on in the U S right now. And I stopped for a second and I thought, you know what? I'm a, you know, I I think of myself as sort of a woke guy, but I'm a, you know, a straight white guy living in America. Right. And if you're a, a black man living in America today, you're watching people shot down for no reason around you. And of course you think of it as a war. Right. And it opened my eyes to something that I, it's not that the information hadn't been there for me. I had never thought of it that way. And in the play, it wasn't something that he beat over the head. And, you know, the, the soldiers coming in basically felt like they were coming from some kind of a, a Black Lives Matter rally or a slightly stylized version of that in the end. He, he very carefully was trying to sort of tell this story without what he kept saying is I don't want to hit it so hard that it turns people off. Right. Um, I'm trying, he's trying to thread the needle and sort of make his point without being preachy about it. And, you know, knowing that the bulk of his audience were going to be middle-class white people. It was truly a case of theater opening my eyes to something that, that had been there for me to see, but I had never seen before in that way. And it, it was deeply moving to me and the Mm. whole production was sort of deeply moving to me. And it, 
we talk a lot about theater being something that opens people's eyes and teaches them and blah, blah, blah. And, and I feel like most of the time it doesn't, you know, it's nice when it does. Mm. And even just having like an emotional reaction to it is nice. So much theater doesn't actually even elicit an emotional reaction. But for me to, to get to work on a show that actually changed me in a way that way was, was sort of extraordinary. And and meant a lot to me. You know, I, I don't know if I could take it on every show because it would be too emotional to, sure. to to have that kind of awakening. But it, it it's I think theater at its best can sort of it allows us to see the world through somebody's somebody else's eyes, and that's part of why I just keep doing it. Is every show not always as dramatically as that, and not necessarily with political implications, but every show can can allow you to see the world through some new set of eyes, and that at its best I think is what we're trying to do. Well, I think that's a, a great note to wrap up on. Thank you for your wonderful designs. Keep them coming. Where is the Richard II going to be produced? I don't think I'm allowed to say yet because it's not been announced yet and I'll get in Got trouble. It. But oh, uh, <laughs> it, it'll be that. announced and you'll figure it out. <laughs> I'm, not sure that it's, I'm not sure that that's true, but it, I, I, I don't want to get myself in trouble. <laughs> can, can, can we point, say, the tri-state area, possibly? Yes, the tri, it is the tri-state area. <laughs> tri-state Western area. Hemisphere. <laughs> Beowulf Borat, thank you so much for joining us today and thanks for your time. It's a pleasure and an honor and uh, really great to talk to you guys. You too. Excellent. Thanks so much. This has been Half Hour to Curtain, a monthly podcast with theater artists of note. That's Dan Fishback over there. And that's Mark Kaufman over there. Join us next month when we interview another theater luminary. Half Hour to Curtain is produced by the Los Angeles Musical Theater Studio. Theme music by Anthony Luca. For more information on the podcast, go to www.halfhourtocurtain.com. For more information on the Musical Theater Studio, visit www.lamts.com. Until next time, we'll see you next month.